We're back at DC EKG with Joe Grogan and our guest today, Charlie Hooper. Charlie, again, thanks very much for joining us today. We want to talk a little bit more about some additional implications of this Medicare prescription drug scheme and then focus a little bit on your book, Should the FDA Reject Itself? But just to finish out our earlier conversations on the prescription drug negotiation provisions in this summer's fast-track reconciliation bill, you know that there are some trade-offs, some implications for children's drugs, things that could happen as a result of this negotiation scheme that might have an impact on the ability of pharmaceutical companies to bring drugs and therapies and treatments for children to market. wanted to explore that a little bit with you now. Yeah, so um, a lot of drug companies don't test drugs on children initially, and that's because um, typically the adult market is bigger um, and it's more important, you know, financially and for the number of patients. And also, it's just harder to to test drugs on on children because parents are protective of their children; they don't want them being treated like guinea pigs. And so, a lot of drugs when they're launched, have only been tested on adults. And so um, uh, years ago, um, uh, the, the laws were changed so that if a drug company actually goes through and tests a drug on, on children, that uh, that drug company can get an indication for the pediatric use and the drug company can get a six-month extension on its patent. And so this is a huge huge incentive for companies to test drugs on children um, because, you know, if you have a successful drug, you get an extra half year's worth of, you know, Exclusive, use before. Yeah. yeah. Um, but now with the um, the drug provisions uh, in this act, uh, it, it's, it's less based on your patent protection and your exclusivity, and it's more based on how much time do you have before your price is negotiated. Um, and so uh, I realized that we're talking about the Medicare population versus children, but to the extent that the drug companies see the potential, um, they're going to be less likely to, to test on children uh, to get that six-month exclusivity if, if their price is going to be negotiated down. They just won't see the potential. And so you know, it could be that one of the big losers out of this whole um, pricing scheme is children. And that's a pretty startling conclusion, if indeed that turns out to be the case. And as we discussed earlier, it will take years before we're able to ascertain whether or not children, children's cancer, children's other uh, drug-based treatments are actually impacted. But the potentiality here appears to have been totally lost by the policymakers as they wrote this bill and rushed it through Congress. Right. I mean, I think the other thing to keep in mind, too, is, well, two things about that. One, the extra exclusivity for developing pediatric indications was always a bipartisan uh, goal. They wanted more drugs for kids, and Democrats and Republicans united to give that uh, incentive for drug companies to do it. And the other thing it's going to affect potentially uh, would be orphan indications. Orphan indications are for very small populations of patients. You frequently can't make uh, your money back if you're developing a drug. So Congress built in on a bipartisan basis, again, additional incentives for orphan drugs. Again, do you want to talk a little bit about that as to what might happen for uh, somebody either with a child with a with a very rare condition or maybe an adult's got a very rare condition? Yeah. 
So, um, yeah, orphan indications are, uh, you know, patient populations that have 200,000 or, or fewer patients. And so, you know, you, you, you would look at that and you think, okay, it's going to be hard making your money back to invest in R&D for those uh, patient segments. But, but as you pointed out, the, you know, the rules have been set up so that if you come out with an orphan indication, uh, you have, you know, extra protection and incentives to do that. And so it's actually been a very robust area within the pharmaceutical industry over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, but what happens with the um, the, uh, the pricing provisions of the within Medicare currently is that if you have a drug that's approved for an orphan indication, you're excluded from price negotiations. However, if you have a drug that has more than one orphan indication, you will be exposed to those negotiations. And so what this will do is it will give companies an incentive to not go out and test their drug for other populations to see if they could benefit these patients. And so this is telling drug companies, don't try to help further patients with your drug, which is completely the opposite of the way we think about this, you know, go out, go out and find out who you can help and, and help them. Um, and it's also going to put companies in a bind because, you know, they're going to sit down and they're going to say, okay, well, we could come out with this indication first, but then two years later, we could come out with this one, you know, so we'll have to figure out the relative sizes and should we just do one? Should we do two? If we do one, you know, would it be A or B? Um, and so basically these companies are going to be trading people's lives, you know, to, to make these decisions to, to, to be successful so that, so that their investment in R and D pays off. And I don't really think that that's what Congress wants, you know, right. that's definitely an unintended consequence. Well, it seems to me that history is replete with examples of governments trying to impose price controls all the way back to Roman times. <laughs> And over and over and over again, price control schemes usually ended up hurting the very people they claimed to trying to be helping, while at the same time ultimately distorting markets and ultimately falling apart. Right. We'll be evaluating this thing, and it's. Into, I mean, we. I think we could spend hours talking about this, and probably in another week or month or six months, we could have a whole different conversation as we continue to evaluate it, and you'll start revving up with companies. Uh, calling you up and saying, hey, can you help evaluate what's going on with this drug? Uh, and and should we kill this program or not? So I think we'll be unpacking this this scheme for years and analyzing its, its unintended effects and the harm it's going to do to American patients. But let's talk about your book, which um, ironically, you know, when I reached out to you this summer, I this is what I wanted to talk about exclusively. And then in the interim, we had... Uh, you wrote that great op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about about uh, the drug pricing scheme the Democrats were pushing, and then it passed. Uh, so this has been a twofer, but I do I do want to talk about this book because I thought it was so interesting. Let's start with the first question: Why, after working uh, as a founder of Objective Insights, a consulting firm for pharmaceutical companies, and all the work you've done with pharmaceutical companies over the decades? and all the expertise you've, you've gathered, why'd you write this book? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the, the short answer is I feel like I have an obligation to 
society. If I if I noticed something's wrong, I feel like I have an obligation to speak out. Um, and and so you know, kind of the chronography or chronology, the chronology of it is when I was younger. I think I just assumed that government agencies did what they said they did and they protected us. Um, but then in grad school, I studied, um, you know, a lot of the great works of economists and, and we studied public policy and we showed, you know, we talked about how government agencies can actually do the opposite of what they say, or, you know, they're, they're set up to just, you know, enhance their power, you know? And so there's, there's a lot of problems, you know, and this goes back to, to, um, Adam Smith and, and the Wealth of Nations with his invisible hand, you know, that even though people are self-motivated, they end up in the market trying to help other people. Um, and so so I started looking at government agencies such as the FDA with kind of a, a new scrutiny. And then I went to work in the pharmaceutical industry and and it was kind of a struggle for me because I came from NASA and I didn't have much experience with pharmaceuticals. And so I was trying to learn everything so you know i could learn the language so i came in as as an analytical you know quantitative you know person i didn't come in as a pharmaceutical expert and and so one day i i just kind of realized i was sitting at my desk and i realized wow if we didn't have the fda you know what kind of problems would we have you know what kind of bad drugs would be out there and then that that really shocked me and i thought okay well you know all these super wise economists who've been studying this issue for years, are, are they just wrong? You know, where did they go wrong? And so I thought I should, I should really straighten this out. And so I started paying more attention in, in the pharmaceutical industry. And, and then I started seeing directly all the things that I had studied before that could go wrong with government agencies. And, and it's not like when you read the articles of what's going on, it just pops out. It's not like you know, a neon sign. Frequently, the some of the key points are, are really hidden with within the articles. You know, it's just kind of a statement of fact. This company did this and blah, blah, blah. But then you have to think, okay, well, why did that company do this? Or why did the FDA reject that drug? And it turns out it's just really interesting. And I think that we could do so much better. And, you know, many people in my life who I've cared greatly about have suffered and died before their time. And I think that in many ways, the FDA has gotten in the way of drug companies who are actually trying to help us and doing a good job of that. And I think even if I don't have all the answers, I think that this is an important conversation that people should talk about as opposed to just assuming that the FDA is doing the job that it should be doing. So talk a little bit about the examples in your book where you focus on FDA's ability to, for example, assure that drugs are safe or that drugs are effective as you went through and explored the history of the FDA and its ability to adequately discharge its mandate for safe and effective drugs. It seems to me that a lot of what you point out here, and again, standing apart from the, the agency and attempting to take a fresh-eyed view, kind of come to the conclusion that its effort to guarantee that drugs are safe, have a lot of uh, asterisks uh, involved in it. And when it comes to drug effectiveness, Joe pointed out in an earlier segment, uh, and you as well, a drug is not necessarily successful for 100% of people all the time. 
um, but that there are even more significant challenges with how FDA does its job in making sure that people understand the ins and outs of how effective a true, truly effective a drug can be and the sorts of things that people need to keep in mind as they are assessing what the FDA is telling them about safety and effectiveness of drugs. Yeah, those are all um, really good points. So I think one, one uh, situation just really opened my eyes, and that was the story of thalidomide. And um, I don't know if um, how many people watching this are familiar with the story of thalidomide, but it was a drug that came out um, in the early 60s, and it was for um, a, a sleep aid and for morning sickness. And so it actually was given to pregnant women. It was primarily used uh, internationally in Europe and um, Australia and Japan. And it turned out that um, it's teratogenic, and so it can cause severe birth defects um, in, in, the, in the fetus. And so you have babies born with kind of flipper arms. Um, and, and this was a tragedy by any definition. And so supposedly the FDA's greatest achievement was blocking the approval of thalidomide. Um, but but the, the only reason the FDA didn't approve thalidomide back then is because it was it was going through the process. In other words, there was a checklist and you had to check off all these boxes before you could approve thalidomide. So there was no um, su uh, suspicion or evidence that, that thalidomide was causing these birth defects. And the FDA wasn't looking into this. The FDA didn't discover this problem. It was actually discovered by doctors in Australia and Germany. And when they did, um, the FDA found out, like everybody else, from these doctors in Germany and Australia. And um, William S. Merrill Company, the company um, trying to get the, the drug approved at the FDA, actually withdrew it voluntarily. So the FDA never really did anything except say, okay, you know, we have to check off all these boxes. And yet this was considered one of the greatest achievements of the FDA. Um, so so our, our, our conception of thalidomide is it's an extremely dangerous drug, and it actually is for, for pregnant women. So then some years later, I started reading articles about thalidomide being tested for different indications. And it was tested for some serious skin conditions related to leprosy and also for cancer. Um, and then um, it was approved for, um, for multiple myeloma. And then uh, when it showed such good success, other companies took. So what drug companies do sometimes is they take an old drug and then they try to change it a little bit to get better dosing, you know, better efficacy, better side effects, you know, um, what, whatever would make the drug better. And then they get that new compound, which is a slightly tweaked version of the old one approved and they get a new, you know, the patent clock starts over. And so a company developed a slightly tweaked version of thalidomide, um, and it is the number two selling drug in the country right now. It's called Revlimid. And, and so you, you think, okay, thalidomide is just this extremely dangerous drug. Well, and it is to some people, but to some other people, it's life-saving. And I actually have a friend who has multiple myeloma, 
and he is being kept alive by Revlimid. And so you can't just paint as black and white a drug as being safe or unsafe. It really depends on you know who's taking it and what they're taking it for. And, and then I started looking at other things that, that the FDA has approved, and, and the FDA was correct for doing this. But it's it's just incredible things like like rat poison, mustard gas, snake venom, um, the most toxic substance known to humans is a neurotoxin produced by um, bacteria, and it's the completely natural cause of botulism. It's the most toxic substance known to mankind, and the FDA has approved it as a safe and effective drug. It's it's um, Botox. And so people take injections uh, of it, you know, it, it relaxes facial mus muscles, you know, so you look younger. And it also uh, prevents migraines. Um, and it's got some other indications. And so, you know, we think of the FDA, you know, categorizing drugs as safe or unsafe, but but there's really no easy category. And and even if you think of the most safe compound in the world, I, I would think of water, right? You know, nothing safer than water. Well, turns out that if you drink too much water, you can die. And this happens to people occasionally. And there was actually a, a radio contest in Sacramento, California, where people on the air tried to drink as much water as they could. And this 29-year-old uh, mother of, I think, three, uh, she drank, I think, nearly two gallons of water, and she came in second place. And then she died later that day. And what happens, sometimes marathon runners have the same problem. If they drink too much water, they basically throw off their, their electrolyte uh, water level, and, and your body can't survive that way, and so people can die. So you can, you can look at the most toxic substance and the safest substance, and pe people can use them beneficially or people can die from them. And so you, you can't really categorize things like that. And so the other thing the FDA tells us is that it only approves efficacious drugs. But if you look at, at a lot of these drugs, and especially in oncology, we mentioned um, uh, Keytruda, which is actually the hottest drug in oncology. It's the most successful drug out there. And if you look at um, uh, melanoma, which is what Jimmy Carter had, he had, he had advanced metastatic melanoma at a it had gone into his brain. I mean, that's a death sentence, but he's 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 alive today. Turns out he was lucky because only about um, thirty six percent of patients benefit like like he did. And so um, th there aren't universally efficacious drugs and and you know universally inefficacious drugs. And the worst thing is after the FDA approves these drugs as efficacious. The FDA can't tell which patients will benefit and which ones won't. Doctors can't tell that. The only way you can tell is by putting it in patients and trying. And that's exactly what we did before the FDA was around. So, you know, we haven't like moved into this golden era, era where you just test these drugs, you know which one's going to work, and then that's what you give to the people. And so it's extremely common in cancer therapy to to have multiple lines of therapy. You try drug A, and if it doesn't work, then you go to second line drug B, and if that doesn't work, you go to third line drug C. And because people react different 
lead to these drugs, you have to have a, a family, a platform of them out there so that people have something that they can try. Yeah, Charlie, that's, it, it's a shame that we don't, uh, I hope you can come back because uh, this has been a great conversation and you go through some, throughout the book, some great examples. I think it's a really interesting observation that you uh, are able to write this book because you didn't grow up in the pharmaceutical industry and came in after developing a level of expertise and, and some accomplishment in other areas and you kind of looked at the industry with fresh eyes, that certainly uh, the way you approach the FDA in this book, should the FDA reject itself. And I would recommend it to anybody who uh, who is interested in the FDA and drug regulation. Um, you know, you may not agree with everything, but that's not really the point. The point is that Charlie Hooper, with a tremendous amount of ex expertise in this area, has written a very provocative book that uh, should be part of the conversation and should shake things up as people try and figure out how to reform these agencies and and uh, preserve or reject them for the next uh, generation of Americans. So well, I think that's right, Joe. And Charlie doesn't only point out a significant number of anecdotes from which he's able to draw certain conclusions about the, the difficulties and challenges for FDA, also lays out a wide suite of potential solutions. Mm -hmm. So that at the end of the day, the health and, and long-term lives of Americans, and as Charlie mentioned earlier, our leading role around the world is, is positively impacted. So absolutely would endorse people sitting down, taking time to get through the book. It's not really that challenging or that long. It's written to be accessible. It's written to be provocative, and it's written to leave a lot of good thoughts in people's heads about the sorts of things they need to be cognizant of about a, you know, a century-old regulatory institution that yet still is creating challenges and dealing with challenges today for Americans' healthcare. It's great. Charlie, thanks so much for joining us. Eric, thank you. Thank you. And uh, look forward you, to the next opportunity, Charlie. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. For DC Bye. EKG, I'm Eric Uland. <laughs> and I'm Joe Grogan.